Hello, everyone. I'm Al Daldegan, creator and producer of the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast, supported by Rainforest Alberta. This podcast showcases the people who are working to improve Alberta's innovation ecosystem. You got me hosting this episode, and this is a conversation I was really looking forward to with Rosalinda Hernandez and Lloyd Summers with Red Iron Labs. Check it out. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Leaders, Innovators and Big Ideas podcast. Uh, today, uh, I'm really excited. It t- it's taken a bit, a bit of time to, to book these two because they're so busy. And, and of course, I'm busy. But I have uh, Lloyd Summers and Rosalinda Hernandez from Red Iron Labs. Hey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. And I'm glad we finally hooked up. <laughs> yeah it is and it's a saturday so we're, we're hopefully your schedule isn't too tight today absolutely <laughs> excellent so as i usually do i like to start out to learn a little bit about my guests and um mm-hmm. certainly why don't we start with uh, rosalinda can you tell us a little bit about who you are and how you got to where you are today Sure. Um, yeah, I'll try to do the Coles model in it, but you can edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, my background really is communications, technical communications, if you want to be a jerk about it, or specific about it. I was actually trying to quote a movie. You're not ah, being a jerk, okay. I promise. <laughs> technical communications. And basically, I was just living my life and doing what ever like working in corporate and i decided that at that time i wanted to i guess climb the corporate ladder and so i left the the paid job i had at the time um gone a volunteer job as communications director with um, a nonprofit, and so my thought was like i'm gonna go i'm gonna do this i'm gonna show how good of a leader that I am because I was also taking leadership courses at the time and now I'm going to come back and I'm going to be a manager um but this was 2014 so as we all well it was actually at the very end 2013 2014 was my sabbatical as I would call it as we all know there was like that oil crash that happened kind of started in 2014 but really took hold in 2015 and so I um was trying to figure out like what to do, where to go. And I just, at the 20, end of 2014, I started taking, um, don't worry, this is going somewhere. Um, I started, uh, I started my master's degree and it was based on like interculture, international communication. And through that process, plus, um, I was volunteering for the United Nations Association in Canada, Calgary branch and volunteering also in the Calgary Aboriginal Urban Affairs Committee. I started to, I guess, unpack my place in this space and recognize myself as just basically that. I'll leave it there and then say that I was just becoming super aware. I had already, I was already very aware, but this was starting to really unpack um, during this time. And then fast forward 2016, I still didn't have a job. By the, by the way, I never had a job after that. Oh, Corporate, I never got hired again, which is part of the story um, because 2016 we founded. And I'll let Lloyd talk about that. So I'm just going to like kind of go parallel with the founding and my, 
my process into it. And that is that I was a co-founder at Red Iron Labs, but I didn't know my place. And at that time, I was taking some courses with my degree that had a lot to do with culture, representation, and all of that jazz, right? Because if you know me, you know that culture is kind of what I can speak to, or what I like to speak to, rather. And so I more or less influenced um, the trajectory of the first game into Oblivion, I think, because I was just raising a lot of questions, a lot of questions that Lloyd, as a developer, in my my point of view, like it not Lloyd as a developer, but in the development world, uh, was not very representative. That that's basically how it goes. And so I spent really next few years stumbling, figuring out where I fit in into this company, and nowhere. I never found my place. Right? I was just like, I, I don't know how to contribute. Um, this is a totally technical world. I don't even know how to make money for us. Like I know nothing. And through that process, um, where I am now in this space is I feel like I'm very vocal on the um, representation piece of the games and tech development space. I acknowledge that the design piece, the is really tied is the connection between the technology and the users. And it's the users really define the technology. We come, I come from that generation where technology was given. Like, it's just, this is the way it is, you do it. And now we're no longer there. It's the human experience that really influences how technology evolves. And so I guess to put a period into my thought process, it is, I guess where I started was not really knowing how I fit into the tech industry. And I know that there's a lot of people out there who don't know they're not technical, but yet like I did find a place, even though like I am the furthest person from any being able to build anything, I still have contributed to building this communicable company. Nice. I love that. I think we're going to come back to that because there's some some really interesting tidbits there, but it's really, really uh, fascinating. So before I go too far, let's bring in Lloyd. So Lloyd, uh, I'm interested in your origin story, but I'm also really interested in the origin story of Red Iron, Red Iron Labs, because if people don't know what Red Iron Labs is, it's probably one of the coolest companies in our uh, section of the world. So I do want to talk a bit about that too, but let's, let's start with Lloyd. Thank you so much. Yeah. And I could talk about Red Iron all day because it's got a, it's become its own thing and um, and it has its own successes and it's almost its own entity. And I, I think to Rose's point, getting it there was certainly a journey. And so I it's a little different. So I come from more of the technical field. We had worked in some companies together and things like that in the past. And um, we were working at Suncor at one point, I remember him. I couldn't get hired as a software developer for the life of me. I started when I was about, I started when I was 13 and lied about my age saying I was 14 so I could get hired doing contracting work, not realizing that it was cash under the table and I didn't need as I was a kid. I didn't know any better. So there's so much I didn't know, but getting a formal job was incredibly difficult. And um, so I had been um, a medic. I was uh, in construction. I worked in 
uh, sales. I worked in all kinds of places. And so at one point, I ended up at Suncor as a PM in SAP, which is a prestigious job. But at the same time, it's like a lot of sitting and looking at Excel. And I wanted into software so bad. And Rosa had gotten me um, a BlackBerry 10 play or uh, yeah, I think it was BlackBerry 10 at the time. It was wasn't really because it was like pre BlackBerry 10. It was like right before. But the BlackBerry playbook came out, which was a tablet. And you may not know this, but BlackBerry didn't exactly win the mobile con or the mobile handset wars. <laughs> but we gave it a good try. And so she got me this tablet and I could program, but I couldn't get hired. And um, this tablet came out and there was no apps. Uh, so if you wanted Twitter, you'd have to make a Twitter. If you wanted Instagram, you'd have to write a tool to connect to Instagram. And the other thing that was really interesting is BlackBerry people tend to have credit cards and don't like ads. So it's very opposite of the current like monetized platforms where somebody who's a business user wouldn't mind paying a dollar to get rid of ads and have a professional app and use every feature and not have to think about it. And um, so I started making mobile apps and made hundreds of them. And it was a whole massive learning experience. And then used that to get a job in software. Started working at a startup. I finally got a startup that would hire me. And uh, it's like a decade or more ago now. But then used that to like really learn. And we got to the point where, or I got to the point where I wasn't learning anything at the startup anymore. I'd done everything I had been hired to do. The owner is still a mentor of mine, and he didn't like want me to leave. But at the same time, there was I had achieved everything. The app was there. The system was there. I, I was brought in to build the 3D part of the medical and everything was just done. And so they're catching up on the back end and the web and all of that. And um, I just don't sit still well. And so me and Rosa had sat down. I had a job interview come in and we sat down and we were debating, you know, um, what do we do? Do you leave your job and go take this other one? And we, ha we were having coffee at a beautiful coffee shop, Nellie's, if I remember correctly. And she proposed, you know, at this time I was writing articles for robotics and the Internet of Things. And we had a bunch of headsets get sent to us from a company called Razer, which are these cutting edge VR headsets. It was OSVR. It was experimental at the time. It was before the Vive and Oculus were really a thing. And we sat in this coffee shop and we said, you know, what if we say no to the job offer and we just build a company? Uh, we'll build the first VR game company in Calgary. It'll be amazing. We'll be do all of these things. But we knew it was a high risk. We knew it was difficult. But that was really kind of the founding moment of the company was sitting there and making a calculated decision. We we're going to take that risk together. We were going to jump in. We didn't know a lot of things. But we knew enough that we thought we could build a business. And um, then, yeah, and shortly thereafter, we got into games and then realized there's a lot more we need to learn. And then we expanded into uh, um, more of the consumer and industrial stuff. We got a lot of questions coming in from other companies. How do they build VR? And suddenly you're sitting there with all of these amazing projects and all these amazing places. And uh, suddenly you have a whole team. And it's, yeah, it was. A very interesting meandering path. But uh, yeah, it was very calculated. It took me um, probably about six years. I had sat, sat down and wrote down a plan of how I was going to get into software, going into startups, working at startups so that I could learn from them about businesses that were software driven, um, 
get a chance, get an opportunity until we could build up our own business. But that moment sitting in the coffee shop kind of rushed the plans. Um, and yeah, it was it was a moment where we knew VR was coming up and we saw the value in it. And we were like, if we jump in now, we'll be in a really good spot in terms of like the learning curve, of the technology coming in. Oh, um, yeah. So it was a calculated risk at that point. Well, your timing was absolutely brilliant. And I'm probably coming up on two years into VR. And uh, prior to that, I knew it existed, but I wasn't really an enthusiast. I didn't have a headset. I didn't really pay a whole lot of attention to it. And now it's just, it's starting to grow like crazy. Apple's releasing their heads. I think they just, just released their headset, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, Meta's on their third version. And, you know, Sony and is got one. And what is it? Google and Nintendo are combining together to build one. So this stuff isn't going away. And you are so far ahead of the game using that meant to be a pun, but so far ahead of the game. And it's really, really cool. So if there's one thing I want to ask, it sounds to me and correct me if I'm wrong, Lloyd, that you're essentially self-taught like for everything from construction to sales to everything you did, you just figured it out. and then kind of went and did it so that you could say, you know, do you want this? Because I can do this. It wasn't, yeah. this is my resume and here's all the degree letters I have behind my name and stuff like that. You just kind of went, I do this for you. Do you want it or not? Right. Is that that fair? Yeah. And there is a little bit like Medicare or things where there's a mandated uh, safety requirement. But um, yeah, I am different in that, like, you know how people have that little inner voice that says you can't do something? That person's <laughs> evicted from my head. So I was raised to always believe that if I take a shot at it, I'll, it doesn't matter whether other people can think you can do it. It's you do it. Like my mom always grew up drawing and painting and doing things. And we're terrible artists as a, <laughs> as a family. <laughs> we try <laughs> because we enjoy it for ourselves, but we, you know, um, the, the lack of fear in that regard was really embedded in me and my upbringing. And part of that is because, Kay, when I was really, really little, I was bad. I was being such a bad kid. I was in so much trouble, single mom trying to raise two kids and this one little boy's like running around. I was doing bad stuff, like trying to break into cars to steal pocket change because, you know, and like getting a group of four other people to do it because we're all like 10 year olds. We're going to run around and, you know, like just being the, the menace of society. But at the same time, you look back and you're like, compared to what kids get into today, that's dangerous. You know, like a couple of kids running around and vandalizing things. It's bad, of course, but it's like also there's like, yeah, it's just interesting. So she locked me in a room for two months. I was grounded, grounded, grounded. She took everything out except for encyclopedias. And she said, you want to you want to do this, you're going to learn what it's like to be in prison. So every day you have to write an essay, which is not what they do in prison. (laughs) But to a 10 year old, it's like terrible. And she would donate my allowance. And I'd have to go and watch this TV program until my name came up that showed my my allowance was donated. But about a month in, my mom could see I was trying really hard. And so she started bringing home old electronics and tools. And so she always told me, like, it's garbage electronics. Just take it apart and learn how it works. She knew enough to tell me not to touch a capacitor because they carry a lot of electricity. (laughs) And so she said, if you see these things, don't touch them. And so it's really my mom's values uh, bestowed upon me. And so she kind of got across to me that if you can take it apart, you can probably fix it. And if not, you 
could definitely one day have enough money to buy a new one. So it's that like lack of fear of trying. And I think that that's why I've never really second thought whether I could do it. It's more a question of like, you know, do I have the time or is it a good investment and things like that is, is the harder part, which is like, I got into asbestos removal for a while because I saw an ad for demolitions expert. I'm like, this is going to be amazing. I'm going to be a demolitions expert. And it's like, no, you're getting a rock hammer and you're chiseling away at <laughs> in these giant containment facilities for 10 and 12 hours. And I don't always think through the logistical part of the process. But yeah, it was definitely a learning thing for my mom that kind of like, and that instills in me how my brain works, which is like, it never occurs to me to, Sending a car in for repair is going to be a better experience than taking a shot at fixing it myself. It just that my brain doesn't think that way. And, That's brilliant. And, uh, yeah, she kind of that was Your my mom, mom's influence. This is a, a a beautiful example of epic parenting. So uh, <laughs> that yeah. that is such a cool story. <laughs> yeah, and she would sneak cookies under the door and a little plate because you know she feels bad because <laughs> I'm grounded. But at the same time, it wasn't like it was the biggest thing, but we, you know, like we had gotten into a neighbor's car and stole a camera and took pictures of ourselves. And then we felt bad. So we put the camera back. But they went and developed the film and they're like, why are these six kids from the neighborhood? You know, like, it's just like your kids being bad kids. And uh, yeah, the way she handled it, I think, was brilliant. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I could have gone so many different directions. right? Oh, yeah. No kidding. That's so yeah. cool. Rosalinda, you're. Your story is so interesting as well, because you're kind of, you have one leg in sort of traditional education, get my master's degree. And then you have this other leg in, um, I just want to go somewhere where I, I don't say don't belong, <laughs> don't, don't feel comfortable, and I'm just going to own it and make it happen. And then you have this, this sort of, you're looking at, you're looking at this world of technology and you're seeing a bunch of introverted white guys and you're saying, this isn't right. How can we, you know, take another look at this? And so it's really interesting and I guess inspiring to, to see your side of the things too, because I'm a, well, I used to be introverted white guy. Now I've trained myself to be a little bit more extroverted, but do see this whole ecosystem is changing and there's the, the diversity of the ecosystem is, is really expanding quite a bit. And there's still, I mean, there's still areas that need some focus, but I'd love to hear some of the things since you started Red Iron Labs, what are some of the things that you've done along that road of diversity? Like, have you actively put a, put a forceful effort into that direction or is it just something you keep considering along the way? Yeah, thanks for that. So many ways to, so many things I want to say. Um, I guess what I'll, where I'll start is in agreement. I think that things have absolutely changed. We, so we were part of a Calgary startup kind of, you know, place. We're part of the 2016 um, launch party top 10. So we, we we're part of that. So there was a lot of, times that we would be at events and whatever, like everyone's middle-aged, mostly white men, whatever. And then COVID happened. First of all, I don't, I'm not a very outgoing kind of person. So I, and by outgoing, I mean, I don't go out very often. And then COVID happened and that even shrunk even more. So before COVID, like, like I said, it was like just a lot of your basic 
kind of audience, even if, even when I would go and network at like professional events that were women driven, there was a lot of like white women, like in suits, you know, like just what you would expect, uh, your middle, what do you call it? Like your middle, um, career place to look like. So, so anyway, okay. So coming back, like after COVID, probably last year was the first time I had gone out to a similar type of event and everything was so different. You know, I was on a panel for the Tech Thursdays discussion by, um, I can't remember the exact group, but they're funded by Neo Financial. They have events every Thursday. And like the audience was like, definitely more vibing. They're more vibing. I walk in, there's music blaring. And if you know me, you know that I cannot public speak. Like I get really scared. I'm going to pass out. Oh my God. And he's like, you know, I freak out. And the music like totally relaxed me. And I was able to like speak in there. And if I were to, yeah, I guess describe the audience, I would classify that as a pretty diverse, you know, crowd. Anyway, so things have changed. Things absolutely have changed. What we've done with Red Iron Labs, I think that, like, number one, I don't like to publicly, I guess, put our stuff out there to be like, look how great we are. Um, because I don't think that anyone, I think that when you're doing meaningful work, you're doing meaningful work and you should focus on that. And um, I tell my social media manager, don't post any of that. Don't post any of the work that we're doing. Don't post on important days, like, you know, the, the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Do not post anything red iron on these days. And you wouldn't really notice us doing these kind of things. The reason is because the work is supposed to be meaningful. At least that's where I come from. So um, I am a racialized woman, but I have a lot of um, privileges with, you know, yeah, I have a lot of privileges, period. So to me, it's so important to be self-aware. And I think that that is, that's the key to moving forward. And what we've done with Red Iron Labs is, because if you look at Red Iron Labs, the developers, for instance, um, they would more or less like look like the, the status quo. And the reason that why, why that would be is because you know we've been in business for eight years well although we we didn't start hiring right on day one but let's say in the eight years the change has not been so prevalent until the last couple of years there were some previous years where the hiring pool was representative of the status quo there's not like not that there's nothing you can do about it but you're looking at the representation like this this is why representation matters because you're looking at the pool and it's like, well, it looks like the status quo. What can I do about that? My approach has been um, to I develop, to develop the our team's self-awareness, to talk about things like privilege and how this society harms non-privileged folks, right? So just having that place that they learn. So <laughs> kind of complicated. I don't know if I'm finding the right words that I want to say, but uh, self-awareness is key and exposure is also key. We did bring in an anti-racism consultant last year 
because I'm finding it significantly difficult to um, facilitate these conversations because I do like I have so many things to do. So there is that. But the other thing is kind of going back to like acknowledging my privilege. What is the difference between me talking about disability justice when I do not when I live with privileges that, you know, ex exclude me from really understanding it? What's the difference between that and a white male professor talking about oppression? You know, like they're they're the same thing. And I just feel like it's so important that. Yeah, I don't know how to phrase it better. Self-awareness, meaningful, meaningful work that actually comes from a place of change, period. I don't know. I don't know. Nice. Yeah, well. I know I could see I could see you struggle struggling with the words because it's it's a topic that's very difficult to to speak to. If you're if you're a person who's in in privilege and how can you possibly seek to represent people who are not in that situation, even though in a lot of cases they can't represent themselves because they're not in the same circles and the same societal groups and organizations as as you are so i think the key word that you said was awareness to me even if your entire company is full full of introverted white males you're taking the time to say to those people i'm going to bring somebody in who's going to educate you and make you aware of all this other stuff that's an issue out there and at least that's a starting point right like at least as a business you're trying to operate a company. When you put out a call, oh, we're going to be hiring this uh, designer. Well, the only people you can hire are the ones that actually apply for that job. It's not like you can just magically make somebody who's much more diverse appear out of nowhere. Like you're trying to run a business. You have to focus on running a business. The fact that when you're looking at those resumes, you're giving an equal amount of clout or, or attention to everybody, regardless of how their name is spelt or regardless of where they come from or whatever, you're giving them all equal viewing that and the fact that you're training your company, the people that are with your company on what these issues are and how to be aware and more sensitive towards those issues is a really, really good place to be. And so, you know, kudos to you, pat yourself on the back for that. I think that's awesome. Can I just say something? Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, second. So, yeah, um, I just wanted to, I guess, thank you for that. I want to just, I guess, one of the things that's really important to also acknowledge is that in trying to be self-aware, uh, I think that, like, I'm also in um, different spaces outside of tech in which we explore, not explore, respect anti-racism so there's a complete distinction between in my in my in my personal opinion um between dei diversity equity inclusion and anti-racism so dei is now kind of at the point and i'm making general statements here mm -hmm. right because mm -hmm. i only know my place yep. where i am now but dei it has kind of transformed into the terms that are commonly used and more or less they pander to the white audience, right? We're not really making changes for the people who are intended to, for the changes to happen for. So 
You're not centering. When in DEI, there's a lot of DEI strategies that do not center the people who should be centered. When it comes to anti-racism, it's just it, that that's what it's about. Centering um, the people that, you know, this should be this should be about. So I think that when it comes to looking at like resumes and how we hire and stuff, first of all, we haven't hired um, in a very long time, but I'm at this place aware enough that some of the things, systemic things that kind of create that those barriers is the way in which we approach recruitment, right? That's, that's an example or how we write our job postings. And so it's like, I do have limitations with the pool. And I guess that was my reality at some point. And our, our team doesn't necessarily look like they're not, I'm not the only like racialized person in the, in the team. So they're like, I guess what I'm saying is like, um, there, that was a reality, but that was also my time, my mental frame at that time. I didn't have these anti-racism knowledge or tools at that time be like oh okay like when i phrase our job postings this way that's actually excluding mm -hmm. you know because if you look at myself i mean the difference I, I think the similarities between lloyd and my journeys into tech is that we lloyd had challenges uh getting into tech because of his education he didn't have education so it became a barrier for his entrance because Companies are like, no, you need a degree in this. You need five years in this and blah, 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 blah. Uh, so he faced that. But also from my end, I never found another job. Doesn't matter how smart I may have been, how skilled I also had or education, I couldn't be hired. And it's because many ways, like things are phrased in certain ways. There are already like systemic barriers into um, these places. Things like, you know, I always hear people say, like, if you don't have 100% of the skills, fine anyway. Mm -hmm. I never got any of those callbacks, you know, and I, I had that potential. So I'm going to end it here. But I guess what I want to say is that the that's that's the thing with anti-racism is that you're centering the people who need to be centered. And through that process, acknowledging that, like, you know, there are innate problems in how we do things. And that needs to change. Nice. Nice. Well put. Mm -hmm. uh, and I do did, have one ahead, small like, thing that totally came to mind while Rosa was talking, because she was saying, um, you know, how this applies into hiring. I also wanted to say it also applies into the product development. And I thought this might be a good chance to mention your talk coming up in Inventures around avatar creating character creation, because I realized there's also the because I'm like, yeah, totally. And then I'm like, oh, but there's also, yeah, the actual tangible product changes that come out of that. Too. Yeah, you're you're building products that that people outside of your own company are going to be using. So you have to consider all of that. That's that's exciting. So Rosalinda, you're going to be doing a talk at the at Inventures. That's cool. We don't we don't typically make this show timely, but I think this is still really exciting. Um, let let's talk about this. Like your you're obviously overcoming your fear of public speaking if you're going to be speaking at adventures, which is a very large crowd. But before I ask, before we go about, before I ask you about that, I want to say something before I forget. I really respect the comment you made about how you're not you're not taking advantage of 
specific event days to advertise your company. Like you're not jumping on the bandwagon for the specific day to brag about your company. I think that's cool. First of all, I want to say that's cool. But the other side of that, and I wanted to mention is because you have a successful company that that that's that's very unique and and fairly well known in the ecosystem you actually have a position and a voice to be able to spread the word on things and i think that might kind of lead towards this this talk that you're going to be doing um it, it's it's actually really an awesome place for you to be so so tell us a little bit about this thanks i appreciate that that's really interesting that you share that perspective with me, because uh, sometimes I do feel that when I bring something up, we'll say to the ecosystem, I'm not standing on a soapbox and preaching, but to people in the industry. Yeah, I, I don't really I get lukewarm reception, and I think it, it may it could be um, because I'm speaking at a moment of like, hey, you know what? I saw this and I'm just letting you know that's harmful. There's a risk of co-opting. And I'm letting you know in a safe space that that could be harmful. I don't always get the best reception. Um, so it's interesting that you're like, hey, more or less, this is me summarizing where you say, hey, you have a platform. People like, do you really like take this um, someplace? I'm like, yeah, cool. I don't feel like that, but thank you. I don't feel like that when I'm being rejected. So maybe I need to focus on um, the positive things like this adventures talk. And thank you, Lloyd, uh, for bringing that up. And uh, thank you, Al, for allowing me to speak about it. It's really in development right now. So I, I don't know exactly what it's going to be. But I guess the foundation is correct. The, the product diversity, in- equity, inclusion is often, um, I guess, put into that box of human resources. Uh, it's a human resources problem. And people who attend those kind of talks are human resources folks trying to understand things. And people just kind of like, they're like, mm, interesting maybe, but not not for me. And that's, you know, whatever. And it's because it just kind of gets clumped into human resources. But again, we're talking about anti-racism and breaking down, unpacking like, and centering the, and how we center things. So. For us, it's like product development is absolutely important. As you said, Al, you know, like we're going to be selling things to people. And some of the values that we're, you know, trying to discuss or unpack like at Red Iron is, is, is exactly based on that. We're selling to people. So not only is import, are the end folks, you know, important, the process of creation is also important because we are influenced by our environment and who we are like our, my experience is going to be represented in how i write stories you know mm-hmm. so it's it just it's it's harmful when you create it's tokenism you create characters who you know are racialized and you're you have none of that experience so what we're going to be i'm trying to focus on and trying to like figure out how it's going to be approached is the avatar creation, which was actually, I had already been thinking about it, but again, like, I don't know, how do I, how does this evolve? How do I start? Where does this go? Is kind of always in my mindset. Um, and we were 
actually um, doing some work with Norquest and um, one of the team leaders. Oh, I can't remember how we started, but we started talking about avatars. And I said something along the line of our process of creating avatars. And she was all like, I would love to see that in adventures. I was like, okay, click that. And the other person that kind of like brought it to motion as well was I brought that concept to um, our 3D modeler, uh, who is, who's, he's a young white male. And then he's like, I've always thought that we should have a cast, cast of characters. And I was like, yeah, because then he's like, so then when we present avatars to clients, they can choose who's going to be in their cast. And I'm like, I'm brilliant. Yeah. So right now we're in the process of identifying who those characters are. And it starts with my core self, like, like writers who seek inspirations from their own life, mm -hmm. um, their own people who have come into their life. I, that's where I'm starting, but there's a recognition in, in that process that I have a lot of blind spots. Um, I brought up disability justice in the past. So, um, I've started to build the relationship with, and we haven't constructed anything hard set right now, but with inclusivity, because I, you know, I always think back to like the consultant who I work with, who is Jordan Balon. I've known him for many years. He actually, he met through Femwave, which is a, um, it was a music arts festival in Calgary. Now it's kind of transformed. He was working with us to break down our anti or our, you know, like to, to get to that place of anti-racism. So I've known him for a long time. And one of the things he said to me at some point was like, you know, Rosa, like this is a community effort. And that always stuck to me because anything to do with anti-racism, making changes is a collective change. It doesn't, it's not owned by anybody. So us in Red Iron trying to bring meaningful change into the avatar creation process, it's a community effort. Uh, so I'm, I reached out to uh, Inclusity and we're trying to figure out like how we can move this forward. But in terms of the actual presentation at Inventures, I guess I'll say that focuses on that, that process, uh, the evolution to date and how it can move forward. And I'm not speaking at it from a place of an expert. I don't believe, I don't, I'm not comfortable with the idea of experts. I go back to Jordan's, like it's a community effort. And so what I would present at Inventures, which by the way, I don't know if I'm gonna have my own platform or if I have, you know, they're still kind of trying to figure yeah, that out. Yeah. So I don't know what that talk's gonna look like. Really the basis, the grounding of it is, uh, hey, this is how we're doing it. Go, be, explore, come back next year. Let's have these conversations. Keep like evolving it uh, to see where we go. So that sounds yeah. great. That sounds really great. And and I think that the the world you live in, the with which is fairly well focused, uh, clearly on virtual reality. One of the things that's really great about virtual reality and is when you go into an app, you create your avatar or whatever, you get to actually make it look either exactly like you or not even close to you. You could kind of be whoever you want to be. And I love that. Lloyd, let's, when you, when you first started Red Iron Labs, I know it was focused around 
video games. Uh, and then you've sort of expanded past that into other areas uh, with with uh, uh, safety and, and education and that kind of thing. Can you speak a little bit to there's when you first got in, it was kind of like things that lit you up and and games and stuff like that. But at, at some point in time, you had to sort of pay a little bit more attention to the money side of it. Have you been able to have you been able to achieve great success financially from the game side as well as from the other side? Or does the other side sort of support the game side? I'm, kind, I'm really curious about that. Yeah. And what I'll also add to that, too, is, and this is totally unique to small businesses and cell phone mom and pop shops, niche boutique markets is they don't always chase what's profitable. Quite often, you bring in enough money to pay the bills, but you're really chasing your passions. And that's one of the reasons we're lucky to have not had investors early on. We tried and we couldn't really speak their language and they didn't see the, the value or we weren't selling it in a way that they could see that VR would be a thing at the time. And I'm glad we didn't, because if we did, the direction we go would be vastly different. You know, like um, we met with an anti-racism group recently who want uh, to see what we can do for an event coming up. And it's like, as a mom and pop shop, you can put the cost to the side and try to figure out what would be really impactful for them because they mean something to you. Um, and so I totally recognize that money in the world of Lloyd and Rosa is going to be very different from like uh, a large investment funded company. And I think at the same time, like Red Iron's never been the most profitable or the most we don't pay the most. We don't do any of that. What, what we can do is give really war rewarding projects and get really meaningful things built. And, and to me, that's a, a it's rewarding in that way. It's, you know, um, I would say like. Definitely, you got to keep your eye peeled, like for Red Iron. And I learned this when I was working at Smart Technologies was to make sure you always have at least three individually sourced areas of revenue coming in. Um, that's really important. And so for us, we have four, which is our entertainment, which is games, products, events. Then we also have our um, stuff at healthcare. So stroke software, we're running at Foothills to help people learn how to walk again. We have, you know, dementia care training uh, with Lethbridge College for caregiver. We've got, you know, all of these amazing projects that we would company would do anything to get one of those and i think it's because we come at it from that like i don't want to say that we're picky but it's very much like we very put a lot of thought into who we're approaching and why and what we want to build with them where the funding is going to come from and how we very much do pick who we want to work with and why and i think that's really really important and then i think um yeah, that diversity is really important for like diverse income is very important, which is like, you know, if you rely too much on healthcare and suddenly a new government comes into Alberta and healthcare reform happens across AHS, that could be very impactful to your business if you aren't already working in education and industrial and direct to consumer. So getting that balance is really important. I'd say that um, because it's passionate, passion based rather than financial based. There are probably a lot of times we'll put a lot more money into building a game than an advisor would tell us we should. But it's also 
the interesting thing about games is their long-term passive revenue. So like what a game is worth isn't, that's not true. Like AAA studio will say that the first six months is probably the value of the game as far as they're concerned. But what I learned in my mobile days was having 200 mobile apps bring in 20 bucks a month, sorry, 20 bucks a week can get quite lucrative. Mm. So even though the app may only be worth $2,000 over a year, having a substantial number can help. There's also key apps that suddenly do really well. And so I think for us, it's the, we won't know the value of the games until they've run for about three to four or five years. Mm. And we're starting to see some of those numbers now, like some of our games where we thought the game wasn't very good, has done better than we expected. Or games that we put a lot into, uh, we feel like aren't in that infancy, so we adjust. A good example with Muffin Fight is we've, you know, been working in direct-to-consumer, but now we're starting to look at arcades again and go, you know, this would be a really good VR arcade experience. And as we unveil these markets, we learn from it, and it helps us build new games. And so I wouldn't say that we were, uh, the games haven't been particularly lucrative. I think part of that is the province doesn't, like we can find financial incentives to reduce cost in healthcare and all of the industries. Getting something that can reduce cost in games is almost impossible. So you'd need to hire developers, modelers, animators. And if you're doing pure games, we'll even have a hard time getting Shred approved. Go into healthcare and suddenly you can now get up to like 51% in stackable credits. Same cost on both sides, very different industry values and healthcare software is going to sell for a very different price than a game. And so the system in Alberta really has stacked against the game industry, like 10 to one. But at the same time, um, you also, yeah, it's important to have that like direct, because if you're not getting into the creative side, really easy to build a framework for education and be like, this is, we built the best thing ever. And you forget to innovate. Mm -hmm. Then you go and show it to some kids and they'll be like, yeah, it's not the coolest thing I've seen in VR this week. And you're like, okay, I need to try harder. So they overlap in such a way that like what you do in the one field has such an impact in the other. And that constant evolution of innovation and trying to stay ahead of the game can be quite exhausting as well, I think. Just because there's new frameworks, new headsets every month. And, yeah. you know, take the um, Apple Vision Pro, like suddenly a new... $7,000 Canadian headset comes out. You got a team of, let's say your team is 30 people. We're not at 30 people right now, but let's say your team is 30 people. You suddenly got to buy 30 times. And if another headset comes out in six months, that's popular, right? So it definitely becomes very like wearing down. Um, and so I think that's why we also see a lot of studios struggle because there's that heavy hardware cost that, that can come with it too. Right. So you got to pick those decisions quite, quite carefully. But, uh, I would say that we do all right. <laughs> so well, that's what I would say. <laughs> ulti ultimately, uh, yeah. you know, there's there's always room to to grow, but um, you yeah, know, you're, you're if you're paying your mortgage and your groceries and being able to take a a bit of a break once in a while, that's that's a pretty good life too, right? Yeah, and I think for me, that's always the shock when we see some of one of our team members. I think came up on his five or six year, and you're like, I can't believe. Your whole career life has been Red Iron Labs. So like that's uh, or when somebody recognizes you or recognizes the business, that always throws you off. Because I always start my talks by saying, you know, we're the busiest company nobody knows about. And then, you know, a third of the audience actually knows about it. And it's like, <laughs> oh, like that you're 
who you are changes. And yeah. so it's just yeah. fascinating. So, yeah, I, I do want to make a comment on that because Rosalinda was sort of talking a little bit about how I, I get this really f- solid, solid, solid feeling of modesty from both of you. And, um, you know, you're, you're definitely not out there bragging about your company and bragging about all the things that you do. And, and some, some might consider that a mistake. Some might consider that honorable, but ultimately you're still, the end of the day, you're still trying to run a business and make money and pay people's wages and stuff. I think that there's probably a, a beautiful mix in there where you can share your successes without making it look like you're bragging. Mm-hmm. And, and it might be through other people that are tangentially related to your organization that are bragging on your behalf or something like that. It's probably, I'm not really a marketing guy, to be honest with you, but <laughs> have seen some really interesting things happen in that road where yeah. Rosalinda doing speeches or presentations and stuff like that, or yourself, even Lloyd doing presentations on in the community or stuff. It's, it's a way to get you out there because you're giving back. And people are learning about your business through the fact that you're trying to be mm-hmm. generous and giving back of your time and stuff. Whereas, you know, a standard company like Sony or something, they, you know, they have a huge marketing department and they spend all these dollars on those special days. They're doing something, you know, related or they change their, their avatar on their Twitter or their X account for the specific mm-hmm. day or whatever it is. I always find that stuff so hollow and empty. And yeah. so, you know, it's the fine line to walk for sure. I do appreciate that. And I think like for us, a good example is like um, uh, Rosa will get our marketing manager to talk about Elder Sheldon that day instead, you know, or in his successes or somebody else's. And it's like, you don't always need to. People who know who Red Iron is, people who follow Red Iron already know Red Iron to some degree. They probably don't know the nuances or the products or things like that. Definitely getting up on that day and talk about Red Iron again isn't, you know, to garnish three likes versus using that platform to take somebody else's story who is impacted that day and making them, extending your audience to them for even a minute, even if it's five likes, it's five people who now, um, you know, like it's about, me and i i hope that ties into what rosa was saying which is like it's not necessarily it's more about it's not about us that day you know if we're going into there but even then it's more like what we would share personally not necessarily as a business but i think like the we definitely rely on word of mouth like for us i think we have we have a pretty small marketing or sales budget in terms of like, we just don't, we're not that familiar with the territory and we're not that comfortable with a lot of it. So an important time to us is like, Oh, we're going to take a thousand dollars and spend it on ads. And that's, ex- that's super exciting. Cause that's, you know, like that's the the type of budget. It's not like um, a big thing. And I think it's cause we do rely on that word of mouth quite a bit of getting, getting, a hospital to tell another hospital how amazing we are and, and hopefully a project catches on from that. I'm sure Rosa can weigh in a lot better. These are just my views of marketing and stuff, but she's definitely much more embedded in that than, than I am. Well, not in, not in these exact words, but she said at the very beginning of this conversation, the product needs to speak for itself. And so 
yeah. if you're building incredible products and they're and the people are getting incredible value from them like the medical side of things or even the games people are loving the products you just happen to be the company that made them mm-hmm. <laughs> and and that's really interesting and one thing you said earlier lloyd that i kind of caught it sounds like you're coming up with an idea of with for a product and then going out and approaching organization that could use that product and then selling it to them rather than people contacting you and saying hey we're trying to do we're trying to get into vr can you help us with it how how much of of either of those is is your kind of main business yeah and some of it's projects that come in through word of mouth so i don't want to make it seem like we we do all of that but at the same time there's two types of leads that we kind of do there's ones that come in through word of mouth and recommendations those are really important to me because somebody's vouched for you and suggested you. And so it's very important to protect that so they keep saying good things. Because if you go and do a job for them, you run behind over budget and won't do a good job. They're going to go back to this person and be like, why the heck did you recommend these people? So you got to protect that relationship, which is very sensitive because it only takes one bad comment to throw you off. Then the other side is what we kind of call manufactured opportunity, which is like, A good example is we have some really big uh, grants that we're chasing right now with municipal um, city governments where we see an opportunity. I know somebody in that or maybe Rosa knows somebody in that group or Maureen knows somebody in that group. And we're like, we reach out and we're like, hey, do you want to start putting together something to go after this? Here's some ideas we have. And we start bringing in those resources. And next thing you know, you've got like Herbie institute coming in and giving advice and the stroke neuro recover and maybe you've got an engineering team and city on board and so you're manufacturing this thing together the hard part about that though is i've seen a lot of people that do that unauthentically where it's like you know they're doing it for the money and it's like and it comes across and so you know age-old problem of like how does somebody cold call a doctor for building a project together they're going to not be interested you know you need to have more meaningful engagement and i think where we're really lucky is we have such a positive network of people that it's like oh man if i need advice from a stroke doctor i know who to call and not everybody has that opportunity and i think that that's also what the word of mouth really gets you is the supporting networks or um your idea will get pitched it'll go to a government board and it'll come up to a subject matter experts and two or three of those experts have heard of you before and that's a really and in a good way. And so it, having that word of mouth to me is well, it's also the only way we know how to do business is through recommendation and trust and, and support. Uh-huh. And I think uh, those are the hardest, longest networks to build. And uh, but yeah, it's the manufactured part, which is another good example is we used to do some work in autism where we were working with a company and kids who are have heavy, heavy autism to try to find ways to get them to have tools to communicate that they wouldn't normally have access to. Uh, that project went south. The person in charge of that company's long gone. It's always interesting to me that like, especially early on, your company seems to outlive a lot of the, <laughs> the small companies you bump into early on because everybody's in that volatile industry. Yeah. So we pushed really hard last at, at the end of last year and said, we want to get back into this. We have industry experience. We've met these amazing people. There's an opportunity here. We don't want to let it slip. And so you start having conversations and it's a lot of times it's just about like reaching out and being like, Hey, we want to learn more. You have a program we can take. Do you like, you want to understand what 
you're getting into before you do it. And if they have an opportunity and it's authentic and they see a positivity in what you're doing and vice versa. So I call them manufactured, but really it's not quite because that makes it sound like we built it out of nothing, but it's more like more like built together, like it's an ecosystem, right? So, you know, reach out to Autism Cantech, who teaches about neurodiversity in employment. And it's like, well, as an employer, we that's such an under-researched topic. How do we learn about it? You know, and then if something comes out of it that's an opportunity, that's great. But the real opportunity for us was to learn about neurodiversity. It just where our passion and interest in that topic helps us get maybe a project down the road or things like that. And so, yeah, I call the manufacturer, but it's more like intentional, moving into intentional markets with people that you trust. Brilliant. Is what I would probably say that as. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. There's so many, uh, there's so many topics that we could talk about. We're already coming up on an hour. I can't even <laughs> believe it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to call this part one and I'm going to see if I can find a way to arrange another time with you guys some, at some point in the future where we can kind of continue this conversation. If you're cool with that, mm -hmm. it's, there's just so many things to talk about. Rosalinda, I wonder if we can kind of close by you letting us know all about muffin fight and where where that's heading and and what you're because you just had a, a recent launch of a new version or something I, maybe you could clarify what's going on there yeah thanks for that yeah so i guess i'll premise this with i don't think that there is my in my point of view there are many ways to do things we only know our way so in a lot of what lloyd said like that's not how we do business other than how we do business. So with Muffin Fight, it's connected. Um, I've had like, I guess, experts, industry experts say, oh, that's interesting. Why would you re-release the game? Because you've already maximized your peak, you, your peak and all that. I'm like, cool, man. Like you run your company like you and we'll do it like us because to me, we're learning. That's how we do marketing project management, like we don't have those implemented structures in place, but we've learned that we need some, and this is how, like, this is how we evolve with Muffin Fight. Yeah, we just had a re-release, uh, I guess it's a 2.5, I don't know. Basically in June, we released uh, the Muffin Fight that had a social space. Originally Muffin Fight was just made, like gathering ingredients, baking and throwing, there wasn't really, um, it was originally made to like open up new rooms, more people than four showed up, but there was no social space implemented. So social space where you all like join and gather and practice muffin fight and play and be all like joking around that was implemented in June. And then in December, we did a, I guess, launch with a uh, different, I guess, uh, more refined features to that. So I, I'm not, you know, Lloyd and I are not good salespeople. I'm not selling. I think you chose the wrong person to sell this to. Because I, <laughs> I take things through a narrative place. But basically, yes, my was re-released in, in December. Um, it has a place where you can go and socialize with people uh, and then you can enter and play the games. 
And one of the things that we're learning through this process is like, what are the things that people really value about this game? And as Lloyd kind of mentioned earlier on was that there seems to be a market in the arcades that they want more of these kind of multiplayer games that are fun, that are family friendly. And I'm always like, well, you know, we're not really a family friendly company. Just letting you know, we're not. We acknowledge privilege, we acknowledge violence, we acknowledge all those things. Love and Fight is really fun for the family. Yes, absolutely. So there is, we're, we're kind of like, yeah, we're in that place where we're like, you know what, there is something here, there is a market here, and our future games are going to integrate these three things about Love and Fight. Probably not this. You know? So we're kind of quickly learning. And that's how we, that's how we do at, at Red Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you have a very, a very agile business and everything you do is very agile. You just kind of go. I would I would he- hesitate to guess and I don't necessarily know this uh, myself, but I would hesitate to guess that. Adding some new features to an existing product, test things out and see what and, and kind of go in a different direction based on what you think people actually want, probably a lot cheaper than creating a brand new application from scratch. Would that be fair? I mean, I think so. <laughs> I, I I don't know it from a cost analysis perspective, and maybe that's one of my problems. But <laughs> I do feel like I, I can see where they're coming from because they're like, you know, in the way that the games space work, you know, you're gonna reach your maximum point of players during the first release, and then second time around, maybe people won't want to cover it. Maybe people had a negative experience. It's never gonna be the same potential. Um, so I can see that, but at the same time, I, I'm like, mm, I don't know. I don't know if it's different, my, you know, inexperienced way of seeing things or it's a new way of doing games, but be it is iterative. I mean, like there are games that release assets every week mm-hmm. and I don't see it much different from that. Obviously our audiences are different, but doing the re-release to me makes sense. To keep it fresh. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how to answer your question. Well, it depends what perspective I think you're looking at. Are you looking at it from the perspective of the audience where they're yeah. just like, oh, another version of a game. I either liked it or I didn't like it or I didn't know what it was. Maybe I'll give it a try or whatever. But what I find really fascinating is your perspective from a company perspective. You're using the game to experiment and learn new things about your audience and then changing things based on where you think that they might want to go and then seeing how it works. I think that's incredibly that's powerful and useful, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That's how yeah. I feel. You look at other games, they, they launch, you've been playing this game for a while and you like it. And then they launch a new theme pack or a new environment or a new storyline or something. So it's a, essentially it's the same game out with different graphics and a different storyline, but it's still the exact same game. So you can only get so much out of that. Whereas if you're actually changing the purpose of the game, uh, you know, it's ultimately you're throwing muffins at each other. Now, all of a sudden you have this community part where people can get together and joke and laugh and and experiment and play together. That's a really cool, almost like a a psychological evaluation of what people really want and and how they interact with each other in this virtual environment. I, I find it quite fascinating. I think it's pretty intelligent of you to do your business in that direction. And frankly, it's working for you. 
So uh, don't listen to the naysayers who think they know what they're talking about because everybody's different and you guys are different. You have a very, very original and unique organization. You're both very, very original and unique people and uh, your successes. It's uh, it's obvious. Right. And, and you know, like, like Lloyd said, you, you, you go, you may not know our company, but and everybody's like, uh, actually, we do know who you are. That's, that says a lot, I think so. Um, you know, I'll I'll give you a second to uh, to add in anything you want, but I do want to start closing the show and thanking you so much both for being here. I know it was really hard for us to get together, but turns out evenings and weekends are better than trying to get together during the day. So, uh, <laughs> any any closing comments, Rosalinda? That anything I missed? Oh um, no, I, I guess I just want to say thank you. I know I was silent while you were saying all these wonderful things. So I just want to say thank you for sure. Uh, I. For those who can't see it, I was giving hearts. There are no hearts emojis here, but <laughs> I do appreciate the um, mm-hmm. acknowledgement. I think one of the things that, you know, the ego in me is like, you know, I, I want to be understood. You know, like that's all I want, you know, to be seen as one thing. And I appreciate that, but I just, I want to be understood is ultimately like when I, when I share anything about, you know, my so-called philosophy or how I do things. So I do appreciate time out. Like I would totally love to, it doesn't even have to be on a virtual platform. Definitely. I'm always open to talking about things. So thank cool. you. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Any closing remarks, Lloyd? Yeah, I'll echo that again. And one thing I'll say is I know you've done a ton in different communities for the startup and out community in Alberta. And I just want to say thank you so much for having us here. It's always great to talk, talk to you and just really appreciate the opportunity to get up here and uh, talk. <laughs> awesome. It was so cool hearing your stories and learning more about your company. Uh, I think we could, again, let's, let's see if we can arrange another show in the near, maybe not in the near future, but at some point in the future, we yeah. can have a where are they now or something like that. I just think it would be fun to have another chat with you. So I love that. Thank you both very much. Enjoy the rest of your weekend and talk to you soon. Sounds great. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Again. And thanks everybody for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, we'll see you next Tuesday morning for another episode of the Leaders, Innovators and Big Ideas podcast for Rainforest Alberta. Cheers. If you haven't already, visit rainforestab.ca and sign the Rainforest Social Contract. Become part of the inclusive, silo-busting, sector-agnostic, all-industry, open-sourced, ego-shrinking, ecosystem-building, entrepreneur-focused, wide-open, social barrier-smashing community known as Rainforest Alberta. This episode was brought to you by New Idea Machine. NIM helps new software developers, UI UX designers, and product managers gain mentored hands-on industry experience. And at the same time, we provide companies with risk-free tech talent. Definitely a win-win-win situation. Visit newideamachine.com for more information. Music for the show was created by Tony Deldegan. Please be sure to share this episode with everyone you know. Also, don't forget to come by and say hi at the next Rainforest event. Let us know what you think of this podcast. If you're interested in being either a host, sponsor, or a guest of the show, send me an email at rainforestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>